Right, so hello everyone, my name is Netta and I'm one of the volunteers at Sona Circle. My job here today is simply to give you a bit of a background on Sona Talks and introduce to you to our wonderful host, Shea. So the goal of Sona Talks is essentially to bring together thought leaders in the fields of equality, diversity and refugee integration to share worthwhile ideas and take part in a conversation. This is the third event in the Sona Talk series and our theme today is appropriately titled Equality, Integration and Opportunities. So just to explain the format of the event, we will kick off with a bit of a panel discussion in the style of a Q&A. And after this, we will have a series of shorter, quick fire questions where our panelists will be asked to share the first thing that comes to mind related to a particular topic. It's our hope that you will be inspired to take action and to stand up for equality in all areas of our society. And now without any further ado, over to you, Shea. Um, thank you, Netta. And thank you to everyone in the panel and everyone at home watching. My name is Shea Onobolu, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Sona Circle Recruitment, a non-profit social enterprise based in the UK, which supports refugees into employment. At Sona Circle, we work with refugees to facilitate their journey into paid employment. Our mission is to connect socially conscious employers with a skilled and dependable refugee workforce in the UK and to raise awareness for the need to support refugees. I'm delighted to be moderating this event as part of Refugee Week. I'm also excited to announce the launch of the Sona 100 campaign. Sona 100 is a campaign created as a direct response to the alarming rate of refugee unemployment in the UK, which is over four times higher than the national average. This disparity continues to grow as a result of the COVID pandemic. We are on a mission to partner with 100 businesses in the UK to create more than 100 new jobs and opportunities for refugees. So if you work for a business looking to hire a diverse workforce, or if you are a socially conscious organization and would like to make a positive impact within your community, show that you value diversity and inclusion by joining the Sona 100 campaign and hiring a member of the skilled and dependable refugee workforce today. I'm now going to move over to the Q&A section of the webinar. Uh, but before we start, I'd like to give all of our panelists an opportunity to introduce themselves. Um, could we start with you, Raina? Yes, hello. Hi, Shea. Thank you for having me here today. Um, I'm Raina Summerson. I'm Group Chief Executive of Agent Care. We're a social care provider, independent social care provider. Um, we offer a range of services across the country, um, mainly in partnership with public sector, so NHS, local authorities. And we provide care from younger adults um, through to older people and across care homes, extra care, living care, training company, um, and domiciliary care across about 55 locations with about 4,000 employees. And we're based down in Dorset, but we cover up into North Midlands. Thank you, Reina. Tanya, over to you. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Tanya and I am from Journey to Justice. We are a human rights education charity and our mission is to galvanize people to take action for social justice by learning about untold stories uh, from the US but also the UK, the arts and uh, social change. How does it happen? What's successful? What's not successful? And what can we build on from the past in order to implement in the present? And also we... Um, we are very inspired by the teachings of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, the idea that when there's an injustice somewhere, it's a threat to injustice everywhere. 
and we try to carry his um, his ideas around poverty as well forward with our economic injustice project, which is launching today, actually. Thank you very much, Tanya. Liliana, over to you. Hi, everyone. I'm Liliana, and I am from Code Your Future. We are coding vocational training. We offer the training to refugees, asylum seekers, and anyone living uh, below the poverty line in the UK and also in Cape Town, South Africa. We started in London five years ago and now we are expanding to other regions. We have our units in the West Midlands, in the Northwest and also in Glasgow in Scotland. So it's been quite exciting five years for us. And I'm the community and partnerships lead, and my job is to innovate the way we build grassroots community across the country. Thank you, Liliana. And Iman? Iman, I think you're on mute. I'm terribly sorry, I'll start again. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you now. Hello. Um, Imad, we can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Okay, I'm Imad Arna. I'm Syrian refugee, a restauranter, and a Syrian kitchen in Kingly Court, Cowder Street. Okay. Ah, okay. We I think we caught some of that, um, but until Imad comes back, I think um, we could uh, get started on the questions. So um, I think we'll start off with um, on the theme of equality. And uh, we'll start with you, Tanya. Um, the first question is, what does equality mean to you? Um, sure. Uh, so reflecting upon this question, uh, straight away, what came into mind was equal access to opportunities. Um, so making sure that irrespective of where you were born or where you came from, everyone should have access to opportunities. But and then thinking about it, I wanted to broaden it up to the concept of justice, which I think goes much, much more deeper than just equality. And by justice, I mean thinking about how can we make sure that we render every single human being a fair portion of knowledge, happiness, freedom, prosperity and health. And I think these really go into much deeper level than equality. And, um, and also thinking about justice, not only what we can do at a national level, but also how can we be just as a person? So thinking about the more sort of spiritual. So how, how do we treat people around us, our parents, our friends, our community? So are we also 
making sure that in our actions, we are also just loving and compassionate. Uh, even for as human beings, of course, we are greedy, you know, we've got envy and we've got all of that. But how can we also implement justice in our own lives, personally, but also at the national level, looking at, of course, at equality, access of, to opportunities, but also much more deeper as at how can we make sure that every single human being is respected and dignified and given a fair portion of their fair, of a fair share, I guess. Um, that's what comes to mind. Um, yeah. Thank you, Tanya, for that. Um, and I think leads on to the second question. Does more need to be done to educate the public on the history of equality and human rights? Yes, of course. And I think we can, um, we can do that um, because very often we know people that are already well known. For example, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, and very often those people can be quite, quite further away. So people can feel quite disconnected from, from them because they're like, oh, it's Nelson Mandela, oh, it's Martin Luther King. But by telling stories of regular people like you and me that have achieved so many things, we can bring it close to home. We can educate people about human rights, about what has been achieved in the past, um, and looking at stories because it's really powerful about human connection, even in your own family looking at oral history, the stories that is being passed on from your grandparents to your parents to yourself. This tells also a story, a story of change, a story of um, change that happened in a certain context as well. And how can we, and, and also how can we learn about the arts, how people are portrayed through the arts, how they are stereotyped. And all of that is so educational and it brings it closer to home because there's an emotional connection to all of that. So we can of course learn about um, human rights and, and um, equality and justice through those stories of, of human connections and emotion emotions and also looking at um, I was thinking about the connection between different movements so thinking about for example at the labor movement very often we take things for granted like the weekend oh have a nice weekend but the weekend has been achieved by people who have fought very hard in order to obtain workers rights the weekend paid holiday and all of that we rest on the back of so many uh, people that have fought for those change so how can we also learn about our day-to-day -day, you know the things that we take for for granted sometimes, where do they come from and how can we learn from all, all of what has achieved in the past? Um, and I think that's very important as well to make connections from the past to the, with the present. Um, and very often some people can say, oh, it's just in the past, it's gone now, it's not there anymore. But of course the present is as a result of what happened in the past. So making those connections and making sure that it's closer to home with an emotional connections can help to learn to make us learn more about human rights and change and all of that. Thank you for that, um, Tanya. And that actually leads us into the third question. Why do you think people may be reluctant to take practical action for social justice? And how can we change this? Yes, um, thinking about this question, three things came to mind. Uh, the first thing is um, sometimes people feel that they are not able to to make change happen or they feel that they are not capable of, of of making change happen and i think and i think this is what we do our journey to justice those stories and the arts and the human connection can help to bring things closer to home in order for people to say oh actually 
I don't have to do a big thing. I can, I can do a small action in my own lives. I can look at my community and just start from there and, and, and get inspired from, from what happened from what happened in, in the past. And also looking, for example, at the anti-apartheid movement where people, some people just, just felt, you know, what was happening in South Africa was just, you know, it's, it was never gonna, gonna change. But when you look at the international pressure, but also what was happening in South Africa, how everything came together in solidarity, people that cared and connected with an issue and how change happened. But of course, sometimes we can feel very fixated with an outcome. We're like, oh, you know, it's never gonna happen. Might not, no, I don't want to try. It's, it's just too complicated. It's too big. But actually, when you look at when everybody came together and did something really small, it added up in something much bigger. And it took time. You know, it took success, but it also took failure. And it's never truly a failure because the next generation is picking things up and learning and building on things. So it's never truly um, the, the end because it, it takes time, of course. But as I say, the learning never stops and we can always build on what has been created before. And that's what Journey to Justice is all about. The stories, the arts, the context. The second, things that I was, the second thing that I was thinking about and that can be quite alienating is the language. Very often, language can be very divisive and it prevents people from joining a movement or joining a community or joining an organization because maybe they feel too, in, maybe the language is too, to identitarian and people are not necessarily reaching out to other, other groups or building coalition or building interest um, and how can we move things forward. So maybe sometimes the language and the divisiveness can be quite alienating and people just don't want to join in. Um, and I think we need to do more of this as activists and as, as, as people who wants to join in and, 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 and make change happen is how can we make sure that it's a welcoming environment and not too divisive. And thirdly, I'll end on this, is activism or doing something should be fun. It shouldn't be, be feel as if we have to do everything because that's way too big, but it should, it should be fun. It should be small. It should be com communal. It should be solidarity. So I think, I think if we are also, and, and, and also keeping the dream alive. So we, we're allowed to dream. We're allowed to, to see a vision. We are allowed to join in and be a bit utopian as well and be hopeful. So I think all of this is also part of what can help people to take practical action. Being practical, yes, but also being visionary and, and, and dreaming of a better world to fuel that passion forward. So I think hopefully I've touched on different aspects on why I think people might be reluctant, but also can feel quite empowered and galvanized by stories and the arts as well. Thank you so much, Tanya. Finally, how can people help you and the work that you do at Journeys to Justice? Yeah, sure. So please find some more information on our website. So if you go on, on Google search and you type Journey to Justice, everything will be on, on the website. And of, of course, on social media as well. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find plenty of information and please join us. <laughs> Thanks for that, Tanya. It's very, uh, very, very useful insights. Um, welcome, Rishinara. Hi there. Sorry for the delay. I had a visit at the local hospital and, and a number of engagements in the morning, uh, which overran. So it's great to be here with you all uh, and um, to, to catch you. the end of Tanya's presentation. Yeah, wonderful to have you with us. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? 
My name is Roshna Ali. I'm the Member of Parliament for Bethel Green and Bow in East London. Uh, I've been a Member of Parliament since 2010. Uh, so, um, and I, uh, I've done various portfolios. The, I was Shadow Minister for International Development uh, uh, and then Shadow Education Minister. Um, and I've always had a strong interest in the, uh, uh, the way in which, what, what we can do to support refugees to integrate in Britain in the labour market, but also how we support those who are made refugees in other parts of the world. And um, a, a great deal of my international campaign has been around getting humanitarian assistance into refugee camps, as well as opportunities for people to be able to work. Because of course, however traumatic people's lives have been, often due to conflict, uh, being able to integrate through work is a really important part of that transition into being able to survive and thrive after the trauma that people experience. Absolutely. Um, that is central to the work that we do at Sona Circle. Um, um, Rishnara, you joined right in time because we're moving on to the, uh, the topic of integration. And I think the first question that I had uh, for you was, what difficulties did you and your family face integrating into the British society as Bangladeshi migrants? I was seven when I came to this country. Uh, it was in the early, uh, I'm going to, to reveal my age now, it was in the early 1980s. And my father had already been in this country. He came here in the 1960s during the labor shortage as a new Commonwealth migrant. Uh, he had citizenship um, and he was of that generation that came at the end of empire uh, when you could come and go, uh, a bit like EU migrants could come and go when we were part of the European Union. Uh, and as the immigration restrictions got tighter, many families, including my family, decided, made a decision about whether to, to settle here or not. And so we, you know, when we arrived, um, the East End of London was a very, you know, it's a very different place to what it is now. Um, of course, there are huge inequalities and poverty still, but it did feel much more cut off from the rest of the city. Um, there was a lot of racism. Uh, the far right, the National Front, um, at the time it was National Front as well as the British National Party, were very active. Um, people couldn't really live in certain parts of Tower Hamlets. Um, they, they were kind of no-go no areas in the community. So the physical integration was hard never mind um, other forms of integration. Um, racism was very rife and very overt in the workplace. I know it's, there's still a big, still a, there are still a lot of issues, but the, many of those, that period was very direct. It felt that there was a lot of direct racism and, um, you know, the, uh, the community was very active in having to protect itself through supporting neighbors and, and each other you know, neighborhood watch and things like that. Um, but what I would say is that there was underlying all of that, that in terms of local residents and people who lived in the area, the, the neighborliness was something that was really important, the sense of community and um, the, um, the integration that happened between families, between communities, between white residents and um, Bangladeshi residents, um, was really powerful. And so my formative memories were 
of my mum uh, having friendships with her neighbours who are from the white community. They would do, you know, they would help each other with childcare and, you know, feed the kids and look after each other's families. And actually that was the kind of buffer against the racism of far-right groups that they couldn't penetrate those relationships and that strength in community ties that were coming together. And that's one of the things that I'm really, you know, I love about the East End and the place I grew up in. So there were lots of negatives. There's no question of that. Um, uh, in school, uh, the, uh, the teachers were really good at bringing kids together. And also language was a major barrier. So we were very lucky. We had great teachers who taught us English. I came to England with very little English. I mean, I could do my alphabets and say a few words in English and count the numbers, but that's about, that was about it. Um, and my teachers taught me English really quickly. Um, and they did that with like about a quarter of the, at the time, probably a quarter or, or two thirds of the, sorry, uh, a third of the children probably, or maybe even half were with had English as a second language. So, it's kind of amazing what, what they did for us. Um, and so that, the language barriers were a major issue. Um, the employment barriers and racism, and I have formative memories of my um, dad coming home, to, home from work in the evening and my mum would look out to, to make sure that he was on his way. And you know he, she could see him walk back at a certain time of the evening because she used to be so worried about racist thugs because they would attack um, people of color in the streets um, and racist attacks were very commonplace. So, so I have really formative memories of that anxiety. We often weren't allowed to play out um, in certain part, you know, certain places and without supervision because not because of other things, not because of anything other than um, worry, worries about racist attacks. Um, so, you know, you, you grew up with that sense of needing to learn um, skills to get away from people or protesters. Protests were a common thing in East End, theme in the East End, uh, far-right protests, even up to when I became a teenager in the 90s, um, that was a common thing. And learning, being taught to walk away from those things quickly if you saw lines of, you know, often men protesting, going on rallies and demonstrations. Um, and, and being able to, you know, learning how to, to protect yourself. Um, so that, that, was, that was how it was then. But as I say, that was the kind of, those were the negatives. And then the positives were about those relationships and friendships and um, sense of family and community that really, really helped with the integration process. Rishnara, thank you for sharing that, that personal account. Um, the next question I wanted to ask was, the refugee employment rate uh, today, well, not today, pre-COVID, was actually four times higher than the UK average. Um, this, is, this disparity is only growing. Um, why, why is this the case? Well, there are a lot of reasons. I would say that one of them is that historically, those who even well, there's issues around exclusion. So if you don't have refugee status, um, then the, the process before getting status and then being allowed to work means that a lot of people are excluded from 
the labour market, even the informal labour market of getting skills and opportunities and training, there are lots of legal barriers. Um, and certainly um, there have been periods, there was a time when if you were, while you were seeking asylum, you could work part-time or, or full-time and they, those rights were removed. Um, there has been a gradual set of changes around some of that, but it's still not good enough. So it means that the, the, the kind of while people are working out their legal status and going through the immigration system, their excluded employers, uh, I think, are often reticent um, because they don't they, they don't want to fall foul of the law or they worry about falling foul of the law. So the more that government can do to clarify to employers and give guidance to employers so that they know where they stand. Uh, the better. The other thing is around um, qualifications and language. So, so, so one factor is around language barriers, not having enough language courses and language um, provision. I campaigned, um, you know, ever since I went into politics uh, to get more English language provision um, that is free at the point of delivery for people so that they can make that transition into work. Um, because successive governments have tended to, you know, the last Labour government put in quite a lot of resource, but then during the financial crisis, they focused more on um, a, a sort of higher level language skills. Um, but what you need for those who have very little English is uh, language provision at every level, level two, three and up. Um, and then there's, uh, there, there's, so the language provision is important. But for those who already have language and also qualifications, there has historically been a problem with recognition of qualifications. You've got all these people who, uh, you know, who are teachers in the country, the countries they come from, doctors, um, uh, also engineers, and all sorts of qualifications. I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but whenever I get into a taxi, I ask questions, we chat, and often when I'm speaking to someone who's arrived and is waiting for their refugee status or has got refugee status, you discover that they have these professional jobs, but they can't, they couldn't make the transition through qualifications. So that could be improved. Um, the final thing I'd say is, of course, like with people of other minority communities, there is labor market discrimination. Um, uh, and with refugees, there's probably almost certainly an additional barrier, which is around, let's say, the legal, legal dimension and what is understood to be possible or not, and getting the right paperwork. People are often held back. I mean, I deal with a lot of cases where the Home Office is taking too long to make decisions, even when there's a clear case for somebody getting refugee status. So I spend a lot of my time chasing the Home Office to make decisions um, so that people are not spending money paying legal bills while they're in limbo trying to make ends meet and find ways of working if, in terms of whatever the conditions are that they're allowed to, you know, where, where they are allowed to do some work. So those sorts of barriers could make a big difference. Um, the final thing is, and also access to training, grants, opportunities to be able to make that transition into the world of work. Um, all of those things add up to a pattern that then leads to systemic barriers against those who are from within the refugee communities. The final thing I'd add is, is also about the need for other kinds of support, so psychological support for those who've come from countries where they've been in conflict. Um, I work with a lot of um, different NGOs, international NGOs, and also those who are in refugee camps. And I know, for instance, it, the, the campaigns that I've done 
in terms of the Rohingya population in uh, Rakhine State in Myanmar. For those who have managed to get to this country, the trauma of seeing your family members being killed or where in conflicts like in Syria and other conflicts where rape has been used as a weapon of war, which is a common experience in many conflict zones, people who make it to our country need the psychological support to cope with what's happened to them uh, so that they can successfully integrate into, the, into society, access the support they need in order to be able to then have the confidence to make their way into the labor market. The final thing I'd say is that it's really important that we give people confidence, we give them the training, we give them the skills, we also give them the network, access to the networks of people who are in the world of work. So one of the things I've done is set up a, I set up a charity over a decade ago um, and then set up another one um, called Uprising. Uh, and it's around developing leadership and employability skills. And another part of that program, project charity is to, set, to provide mentoring through an initiative called the One Million Mentors Initiative. And what we do is we, um, we support young adults who are transitioning out of education into work or who are unemployed. Um, we give them training, we give them mentors, we also give them networks into the world of work. Um, we give them employability support uh, and um, help them meet the right people to get into the sector they're interested in. So if you're interested in the medical profession, getting doctors to mentor you, if you're interested in business and so on. Um, those things make a difference. We run a, a couple of programs, one with Comet Relief for refugee young people, not alone, but working with other young people uh, who are not refugees and where they support each other when they're doing the training courses so that by the time they finish the program, then they've got a community of people, usually about 100 others, that, they, that become part of their network. Um, so as well as having the mentors who support them. Um, and what it then means that you've got 100 people who are your, the cast of that year, who can then help each other and tell each other, tell each other where the opportunities are. And when an interview comes along, you don't feel that you're alone. So that sense of you're not going to walk alone, you're not going to have to travel and you know through the world of work alone, is is really key. And those are the ways in which I've tried to practically support young adults as well as young people from refugee communities to 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 get into the labour market. The final thing I'd say is that charitable foundations can make a big difference because they have much more flexible funding, so they can support charities. Um, I think Sona is also a charity, if I'm correct, but there are a number of other charities that work with refugee young people and refugee older people as well. If they fund those charities, uh, that will make a difference, especially at the moment where many organizations are struggling. And I, I used to be on the board of Paul Hamlin Foundation, and we set up a, a multi-million pound fund, um, this was some time ago, which was a combination of research and practical support. Research to identify where the need is so we can influence government, but also um, practical support to refugee community organizations, um, both in terms of giving them grants, but also helping them to access other grants so that they have the capacity to reach bigger amounts of funding to help larger numbers of people. Thanks for that, Roshanara. Um, you've, you've highlighted a number of very important uh, points. Um, so thanks for that. And also um, uh, the uprising and one million mentors programs both sound like great initiatives. Um, this can, I, can I do a plug just quickly yeah, on that? Course, go for it. We're just um, in the process. We've just been funded by the Youth Futures Foundation 
um, to work with 18 to 25 year olds to help them if they're un unemployed or underemployed or if they're just about to leave the education system um, to get uh, it's it's virtual at the moment the program um, so we'll provide a training program plus a mentor for a year starting at the end of July but they can apply now um, and then the and then help with finding work placements and work opportunities and we want to make sure as many people who need that support can apply um, there's two programs one in July and one later on in the year so um, I can send you the details. I've also suggested to the team to get in touch um, because I know there are a lot of young people who are struggling to find work at the moment. So that this is one of the things that we're doing, but there are a number of other charities that are trying to help. That sounds brilliant. And yes, absolutely. Please do keep us updated on those, uh, on that, the Young Futures Programme. Um, Rishnara, this leads us very, quite nicely into the next question, which is what more do you think the UK government could do to support refugee employment? Uh, what policies could be put in place? Well, I, I think that along with some of these sorts of things around positive action, supporting the organizations that are closest to refugee communities by funding those organizations, making sure that they can survive the pandemic and keep going and working with them to help them get into jobs, um, supporting uh, those who need psychological support and mental health and wellbeing support uh, if they've experienced, almost certainly would have experienced trauma. Um, making sure that the benefit system and the support system that's in place is effective. You know, housing costs are really high. Um, if you're not able to work, then that restricts you a huge amount. Um, clearing up the legislation and uh, rules around who can work, who can't, because there are, it's very clandestine. They're kind of uh, navigating your way through what you can and can't do. Um, giving employers very clear guidance on um, uh, what they can do to support refugees into work. Uh, I think those things will, will, will be better for doing those things as a society um, because we've got, for instance, a labour shortage in the care sector. We've got 100,000 shortage of nurses in the National Health Service. There will be others, others, uh, other, uh, we've got a lot of people from refugee communities who have trained as doctors in other countries. We need to accelerate the process of trans translating those skills into ones that are compatible with the UK. So as I said before about qualifications, but also looking at where we can um, support people to get into the sectors where we desperately need more people into the, in those jobs. Um, as we start to bounce back, hopefully out, out of this, this pandemic, there is going to be a labor shortage for sure because the economy is going to grow um, back to back to pre-COVID levels and hopefully grow faster. And because of the, all the restrictions that have been put in because we've left the European Union, um, there's a real, there's going to be a real need. So it just seems like madness not to help those who are in our country, whether it's young people who are UK citizens or those who are of refugee backgrounds who've got the right to work. Um, and if they haven't, let's sort out their status so that they can. Um, that we're not putting them to work because they already are making a huge contribution. Some of the you know, greatest contributors in our society have been from refugee backgrounds and from minority backgrounds. So we've got a lot to gain if we do those things. And that's why the government needs to stop the rhetoric of intolerance and exclusion um, and frankly, racism and start to support everybody that's in our country 
to make to to be able to make the contribution that they desperately want to make. Thanks for that, Rishnara. Um, and the final question from my side is, uh, why should companies hire refugees? Well, look, you know, it's about talent. And there's an awful lot of talent in the refugee community, as well as in minority communities and among women. And companies that are predominantly, you know, uh, mono, monocultural and one gender, dominated by one gender, all the evidence shows that you're less this is, this is the kind of straightforward business argument. You're less profitable if you're less diverse because you're not attracting the talent that is out there. So if you are serious about being successful and profitable, first of all, then it's irrational not to hire people from any community that has the talent. Uh, it just makes no sense. Then there's a clear case for, there's a moral argument, um, because if you're serving, if you're a business, you're serving different groups of people in, uh, I mean, it's linked actually, that then it's in your interest to be reflecting the population you're serving. But it actually helps with the effectiveness of your, your business anyway. If you're the public sector, then, you know, it's taxpayers' money, um, you should be serving the whole population. And also you get better insights the more representative an organisation is. If you're the NHS, if you have people from different communities that have the understanding of the needs of those communities, you're much more effective. I know that I've just come back from the Royal London Hospital, which is, you know, serves a very diverse population. And they were just showing me through their family contact center and the work where they're doing liaising with, with the community. The two, you know, the chaplains that I met, um, the faith um, the, uh, leaders that I met, the Muslim chaplains who were supporting the hospital during COVID um, uh, uh, with patients who were dying that support to families, that support to doctors and nurses who needed support was critical. Um, so there's so many dimensions to diversity that is the strength in, uh, in our society that not only makes us profitable, but makes us a thriving, successful um, society where our, you know, our needs are met. Um, and those within the refugee community have a huge part to play in that narrative and that story. The final thing I'd say is that if you look at some of the great names who come from refugee backgrounds, you know, uh, uh, you know, the list is endless. Uh, and too often people sort of don't, don't get, you know, highlight them. But there, there are so many role models who, you know, who come from refugee backgrounds who built this country. And the same in the US, you know, I think about, uh, is it Apple, the founder of Apple? Um, Steve Jobs has Syrian heritage. I think his, his dad is Syrian origin. I, I never realized that until I read something once. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, uh, but you, you know, he's not the only one. There are so many others who've made such a big difference to the world. Um, you look at the recent case of the Pfizer Neon, uh, sorry, Pfizer BioNTech um, vaccine. The scientists are Turkish heritage, German citizens. Um, I mean, what an extraordinary contribution. Um, the women who are behind the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, I forget the name of the science, female scientist. I mean, uh, extraordinary. I don't think she's come from a refugee background, but I'm just picking up on another issue, which is about women's contribution. Um, so you look at what that collective talent has contributed. I mean, the, the Turkish, um, Turkish scientists, Turkish German scientists have literally, you know, they are the ones who've helped us um, chart a course out of this pandemic. Um, or we could have been looking at 
a lot longer and um, being stuck in this perpetual cycle of restrictions and death. Um, it's terribly sad what's happened, but it could have been even worse if it wasn't for those people and if it wasn't for the Turkish German scientists working collaboratively with others. Thank you so much for, your, for that answer, Rishinara. Um, Liliana, um, I know that Code Your Future also works with employers, and I want to ask you the same question. Uh, why should companies hire refugees from your perspective? Um, first of all, I think that's just a continuation of what Rishinara was just saying. Um, refugees come with a diversity of ideas of ways of thinking their cultural backgrounds are really important for innovation as well so innovation is a key point of that um, the more diverse minds you have in your business the higher your chances to create new products new services that also are attending a wide range of people um, so I think that's a win-win situation. Um, it's all about they are being integrated in society, but also business have a lot to win uh, from their their experience and uh, their multi this multicultural uh, environment that you create in your business. Thanks for that, Liliana. And I think um, I want to focus in a bit more on the tech industry. Um, how big a role do you think the tech industry could have in supporting refugee employment? Well, yeah, the tech industry has a read a very significant role into that, uh, but can that can exponentially grow in the next years for sure. Um, just to give an idea, uh, nine out of 15 uh, top emerging uh, jobs in the UK are in the tech industry. So there is this rise demand of digital skills in the market, uh, which means that now one in, two, in 10 uh, vacancies in the country are in the tech industry. Um, programmers and software developers, as an example, which is profession, professionals that we train people at Career Future. They, they have been the fastest occupations uh, in the last nine years in the country. So there are a lot of opportunities for to business to, and they, they have real power in their hands at this moment to create and to offer opportunities to refugees and other, other uh, minority groups as well. Um, it's a real chance to diversify the recruitment pipeline um, but as we were mentioning here before as well, training is key. Um, and uh, in a recent study, employers mentioned that only half of them are capable of offering training for, for, those, for those roles in the tech industry. Um, so, there, so there we come, uh, Code Your Future, for instance, and other organizations that do this work of vocational training. So business, they have to know that not all the time they have to do it on their own. They have to partner with other organizations that can offer the training for them. And that's what we've been doing in the five, five years, for instance. We've been partnering with business. So we train people um, 
it's good for them. It's good for the refugees. They, they, get, they get access to the training because uh, also refugees and people coming with facing all other so social challenges, they are the la less likely to have access to vocational training and education. So, so that's why it's so important the work of organizations like Code Future and others, because then we connect those groups to the business. Uh, so business not always have the time or the capacity or the budget to do the training, but they have to be open to partner with other um, actors who have uh, the skills to do so. Um, so that's this is all about cooperation as well. It's 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 about integration from the, the refugees uh, perspective, but from the society perspective as well. It's all about actors coming together to come up with a solution. Thank you so much for that, Liliana. Uh, one thing Rishinara mentioned earlier was about women in employment, and I wanted to ask you, Liliana, um, what is something that you think um, could get more young women interested in technology or the tech sector as a career? Yeah, well, I think that all starts with the schools and how they encourage and they promote STEM subjects. It's fundamental to raise awareness among young women and girls on what are their career options actually, because uh, it's not obvious what it is to work in the tech industry. I think that's not obvious to anyone. We talk a lot, a lot about it. So we, we, we see tech industry all the time and the, the demands are, are rising and um, there are many jobs out there in the industry, but what is it exactly? So what kind of professions are we talking about when we talk about the tech industry? It's not obvious and we need to have those conversations. Um, so we need to create the space that, um, that those conversations can happen. And that again requires a lot of coordination and cooperation between government, the private sector, the charity sector, the educational system and the society as a whole. Um, just to uh, give a good example, coding, which we, we, we train, there are so many areas that you can work at as a programmer, as a software developer, going from building websites and applications to actually making movies and 3D animations, and even working the arts. Um, so what are those opportunities to people out there? So I think we have as in general to do a better job explaining what the tech industry is and what kind of options you have within that. And the second point would be the role of the employers as well of closing the gender gap. Um, currently only 13% 13, 13 of uh, the software uh, developers and programmers um, vacancies in the UK are occupied by female professionals. If you are a young woman, a girl, you have to see that yourself is represented in the industry. So that leads us to this vicious cycle as well. They don't relate to the profession because maybe they don't see a lot 
of um, role models that they can relate to. Um, and as I think the key, the key, the, the first step for that is information, is to share the right information, to disseminate information all the time. So those girls and young women, they have access uh, to and to, to reach their potential. Uh, many of them don't know that they can do it and that's possible. And there, there are a lot of women, not as much as we need. So we are so far from that, but there are a lot of amazing women doing fantastic job in science and technology. Thanks for that, Liliana. Um, I think the final question for myself is, what impacts do you believe um, employment has on refugees individually and also on society as a whole? Employment um, helps people to, to regain their agency. So this financial independence that employment uh, gives people is key. It's all about people being able again to, to make choices and to regain their individual and their professional uh, confidence. Um, refugees, for instance, many of them come to uh, the country with a high skill background and, and they lose confidence in, in this journey as well. So employment is, is the route to regaining their agency in, in that sense. Um, and also, as Roshanara mentioned, employment gives you access to networks. It's opened the doors for you to keep going on your career and to present to you what are the other choices you have in your career. It's all about personal development as well, your career development. Um, if you are not employed, the chances that you are you are part of a network or you can get into a network are really low. So it's unlikely that as a refugee, you have access to those networks until the moment you get your first job. And that's why also it's so important the, um, the communal aspect as well. So what do we do collectively so people don't have to wait until that moment until they are part of their a community. And that's one of, of our um, main key um, advantages in our community for the future, for instance. Uh, we want people to feel welcome and the sense of belong should be there because through belonging, you also regain your confidence. So having this opportunity to have access to a network of more than of hundreds of professionals coming from the tech industry before they get a job to help, to help them to get prepared, to help them to get mentored as well, uh, makes the whole difference. And uh, the other point is how society benefits from that. I think, well, uh, more diverse and creative communities uh, are better as society as well. So the better the companies are, the more profitable they are, the, the more jobs they create, uh, and the more creative the space is, society is, 
is uh, benefiting uh, in general from that, uh, from innovation, from forward thinking, from cutting edge products and process and services. And I think, again, it's a win-win uh, situation. Everybody should win in that case. Thanks for that, Liliana. Um, and I wanted to very quickly ask Roshanara, do you have any thoughts on that question? What impact employment has on refugees individually and on society as a whole? Well, I mean, the, the, the first thing is that obviously it makes a massive difference if you can earn a living uh, and pay uh, the costs of the living in, you know, the living arrangements. As I say, if, you live, if you're a refugee living in London, the housing costs on its own suck up most of your income, it, you know, whatever your background. And if you come from a background um, with a, your legal status being um, to often temporary, you know, you might get a period of time uh, and then it has to be extended. There's a lot of uncertainty. So having employment um, and a salary that you can rely on makes all the difference. If you look at areas like mine, and London has the highest child poverty rate in the country. Um, if you can get somebody into work in a family, then that lifts a whole, you know, the children out of poverty. Uh, and then the other part of it is, of course, what we've seen is evidence showing that children, refugee children, outperform in education most other groups, despite their circumstances, which is a really positive, important story. I think the GLA did a study a few years back showing that. And it's wonderful to see that evidence. I mean, we kind of know it instinctively um, because I've seen it uh, among constituents of mine. Um, so it's a waste, of, it's wasted talent if we don't then channel that uh, achievement, especially among the younger uh, people who are coming through from the refugee community and get them into jobs, um, as well as of course their parents. So it, the income uh, is important for the families um, but also in terms of helping us reduce inequality in cities like London, um, and then making a contribution to the economy, which is absolutely vital for our post-Brexit future and post-COVID future, actually, and post-COVID recovery. I'm going to have to uh, head off. I'm really sorry. I was hoping to stay for the whole session, but I've got to dash off to another meeting. Um, really really sorry but i'm very happy to come back and do something again another time one of your um, contributors in the chat mentioned about the call for an amnesty um this is it's a sensitive debate but um it's one that's well made the argument um last year when the pandemic hit many of us including me raised this issue about some sort of amnesty because you've got both those who are waiting for refugee status who are asylum seekers and then you've got a whole load of people who came here to work, who they ended up with irregular status for all sorts of reasons. And one of the things we've, we've been very concerned about is that um, many of those people haven't um, been able to self-isolate because of financial reasons. They don't have the right paperwork to access support. Um, they, uh, many of those people are too frightened to go and get vaccines. There's all sorts of issues and barriers which affect all of us as a society. Um, uh, so there are a lot of compelling arguments for, for looking into the amnesty proposal. Um, uh, and I understand that there are lots of arguments about the push-pull factor that historically has been cited. But I, I do think other countries like Portugal did it, a number of other countries did it during the pandemic. Um, and we certainly 
did make the argument and, and many of us will continue to, to do so. There is a petition that was signed by over 100,000 people for a debate in the House of Commons. I'm waiting to see when that um, is likely to happen so that contributions could be made in those debates. If you've, got, if you've not had a chance to, then you should write to your MPs about those sorts of concerns uh, alongside the, the points that have been made today about employment. Um, thank you again, and I'm looking forward to working with you in the future, and I'll, I'll make sure that you get the, put in touch with the charity that I mentioned, um, working with young people to get them into work. Thank you so much, Roshanara, for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So we'll be moving over to the third segment um, of the talk, which is about opportunities. Um, and Imad, are you with us? Hello. Hi. Wonderful. Hi, Imad. I don't think you had the chance to introduce yourself properly earlier. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, Imad Al Arnab. I'm a restauranter, uh, refugee, and uh, I'm the founder of Imad Syrian Kitchen. Thank you, Imad. Um, the Thank first you. question um, which I wanted to ask you is what was it like as a refugee trying to gain opportunities in the UK? Um, actually, first of all, I want to thank everyone who, like all the speakers before, but I think, first of all, we need to stop, like, individual people as a, as a, uh, like, we keep putting them in groups. And to be honest, saying that all the refugees are refugees and that's it, it's, it's something making no sense to me just divine them uh, what they have to like what they what their, their skills are what they can do to the society like for example right now in the middle of the of this uh, pandemic and we like also our needs to um, sorry I'm, I'm talking from from the from the store <laughs> okay so uh, sorry just give me a minute guys Okay, here we go. Okay, sorry again. No worries. So, <laughs> you've seen an accent now because honestly, working in the restaurant, it's, it's like, especially now with shortage of stuff, is too much. So, we have to be. Um, so, anyway, just like with this really hard time for all the world. I know a close friends of me who's really, really good doctors in Syria, but they are not allowed to work. They are not allowed to volunteers, to be, to be volunteers in, in the hospitals, just because they are Syrian doctors, which is, sorry to say so, but it's a stupid, like we need them right now. We already have shortage of, of like uh, doctors, nurses, so, like we keep dividing people as a refugee or not refugees or and it's something for me it's something silly i don't know where are you coming from but if you can work in my kitchen you are more than welcome to start work with me um if if you have if you work in hospitality hospitality before and you have the experience you are more than welcome to start and work with me um and it should be the same way in every other section like 
especially especially the 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 health sector uh, especially where where we need it uh, mostly like for example when i first came into here five years ago i couldn't work for seven months just because i am asylum seeker and to be honest i think from from i don't know how to describe it but it's it's something silly and dangerous because keeping people out of the world for six or seven months or even for some cases like my brother-in-law it took him 26 months so two two years and and two months to have his refugee status keep him out of the world he cannot volunteer he cannot he cannot volunteer he cannot work he cannot uh, uh, have a bank account or whatever for him uh, it was dangerous for his mental health and to be honest keep dividing people uh, like this situation it's also dangerous because instead of having these people and make them belong to your society and your culture and your community you may you force them to create their own communities inside this big community which is something really dangerous i think i think we need to stop creating new new communities in for example i'm i'm very proud to be londoner but also sometimes i'm having it like for example yesterday someone just kicked my car and say i know who you are just go back and cook falafel in your country which is somehow i know it's different situation but sometimes somehow we with with this um dividing people as refugee and non-refugee we are creating this small communities inside our beautiful community we should all we should all be belong to to this one um multicultural community instead of creating small communities for example when i first uh, when when the when uh, my daughter first arrived uh, daughters first arrived to the uk four years ago uh, they had this in their schools where where being sometimes some somehow they're being pushed away just because they are they are not familiar you know so it was dangerous for their mental health for their um even for to be honest for the safety of the community because some sometimes all of this issue will lead the person to to somewhere dangerous um just at this point i just want to thank uh, thank uh, the speakers before uh, actually yeah they're doing great to be honest at their schools i know that they uh, sometimes like for example they've been here four years ago my daughter the oldest one she got her gcse levels uh, last year and she did straight a stars in all of the topics and uh, actually five months after she arrived she won this competition between uh, she she won com the competition spelling from english to french and french to english and she came third national even though they like english is their third language 
So what I mean is stop dividing people as, I don't know how, if just like start dividing them as how, what skills they have, what, what they can do to our community and how we can, uh, how they can part of uh, rebuilding the community after, after COVID. We needed these people very much. And um, yeah, thank you. Ima, thank you so much for sharing some of your personal experiences. Um, uh, we appreciate it. Um, congratulations to your daughter. Sound like um, she, she's a, a genius. <laughs> thank you very so, much. Actually, yeah, yeah, she's doing now. She's she's doing math, further math, economics, and she's aiming for uh, besides French and Arabic, of course, and she's aiming for Oxford. Amazing. So she's having five uh, GC, uh, A levels uh, topics. She's aiming for Oxford to be uh, to 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 study pure math. That's amazing. I wish her all the best. Thank you very much. And to be honest, this is something like she I, I wanted her to feel like for example now if if she achieves some something she will achieve that because she's a londoner not because she's a refugee coming from syria to london to this is this is what defined a great city this is what defined great community this is what what make britain uh, great you know what i mean this not anything else now like right now because we are keep dividing people we are shortage of stuff and people doesn't trust uh, london anymore to come back from from europe or from they just don't trust it anymore because we keep dividing people based on where they are, where they came from instead of uh, dividing them what they what their um like what they can do mm. to build this community and imad um did you find any difficulties when trying to when setting up your own some of these um challenges and barriers that you mentioned oh yes many of them actually just right now we finished like a huge conflict with with one of the with one one of the big banks in, 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 in London, they freeze our account because it is Syrian kitchen. Can you imagine? Like, because it is Syrian kitchen and I don't have um, a British residency. So they block my account just to be sure that this restaurant doesn't uh, like um, 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 work in Syria because it's Syrian kitchen. So how come you know, they give me like, honestly, the hardest time ever while I'm trying to reopen after after COVID. And their answers always been like, um, it's it's not a racist, but we just want to be sure. It is a racist. <laughs> it's in, it's it's Syrian kitchen in central of in, in the central of London, you know, in central London. Uh, it has nothing to do with with Syria. Um, um, and you know, we had this period all the time. Like, for example, uh, when when we wanted to to rent this this space, not this one, the one before. Their question was, "What if your 
uh, your leave to enter um, expire in 2021 and you cannot renew it, which is, to be honest, I don't know if it's, um, um, I, I don't know, but, but I, th I think somehow I do understand where they come from because honestly, yeah, what, what if your, your, your uh, status being changed? What if you have to come back to go back to your country somehow? Um, a lot of these, like um, for once, e even when when I first came in here, like people doesn't really agree to 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 uh, with the, with the houses. Like I wanted to rent something privately, and their questions like, how? What is the meaning of refugees? It's sometimes it's 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 too much to handle, but yeah, I was very lucky uh, on on my personal um, 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 experience because I always been surrounded by like really good people, uh, angels. I call them angels. And um, this, for example, uh, next month it will be my fourth year in in the same house. Uh, I have a like the best community you can ever imagine. Uh, first neighbor, like, uh, sorry, the, the 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 best neighbors, I think in the whole world, they are amazing. But this is me personally. I was lucky to move from somewhere where everyone looked at you like if you come from out out of this world, just because you are a refugee. I'm not. I'm a chef. I'm a talented person. I can cook uh, much better than, than, than many people over here. So just take the skills, build on it, and make it part of your success. Instead of looking where are they coming from, just ask what they can do. And I, I, think, I think it's that simple for me. I know it's more complicated for for governments or for countries or for societies or, or uh, communities. But for me, it's that simple. I don't care where, I'm from, where are you from. And I don't wanna know. I just wanna know what, what you can uh, achieve or what you can, um, um, how you can be part of building this beautiful society. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Imad. Um, Thank and, you very much. And, and I can't wait to visit Imad's Syrian kitchen to try some of your please do, please amazing do. food. Thank you um, very much. Imad, my final question to you is, what advice or insights would you give to companies considering hiring refugees? Again, as I told you, don't think of them as a refugees. Just, it's that simple. You need employees and they need jobs. So if they are good enough in your company, so hire them. Otherwise, you don't have to. Don't look at the, uh, them. Uh, um, for example, when, when I, uh, like four years ago, when I did my first pop-up, before I did my first pop-up restaurant in, in Columbia Road, I did apply for many restaurants in London and none of them bothered to give me a trial. None, zero. Even they are like, one of them is 
Mediterranean cuisine. So it's my specialty. Like it's, I could do uh, good for your company, but instead you just, you didn't give me a trial just because I am a refugee. So now it's, it's a different story, but I, I will never say that this is, um, to be honest, I didn't, I, I didn't regret at all that I, I didn't work in someone else's kitchen in, in London. But now some of these restaurants calling for collaboration, like, like to, for us to work together on, on something or menu or now I wanted to work for you in, in your kitchen and build that kitchen, but you didn't give me a job in your kitchen just because I am a refugee. But now I'm still a refugee. So now you are asking me to build your own menu where I'm still refugee. I'm the same refugee who, who offered you uh, uh, to, to have some of my experience, but you, you didn't agree just because I am refugee. I'm still that refugee. I, I didn't get the um, British citizenship yet. I am, I am Syrian refugee. And now you are calling me to build your menu. You want my advice to build your own menu. So uh, honestly, it's a big loss for um, for everyone, for our for our community. When when we are keep dividing people, where are they coming from? Or um, um, I'm not saying that all the the refugees are talented and. They are just human beings like everyone else. We have doctors, we have criminals, we have uh, hard worker people, and we have lazy people. It's, we are just like any other uh, community. We are not community, we are just people. Need community to be related to and to feel um, part of. But we are not a community as a refugees we shouldn't be and we should not be because it's honestly it's really dangerous when you dividing people like this and keep dividing them as communities and small minorities we don't need that in 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 in, in our community we need to be all together and work on rebuilding this is my opinion thank you very much Thank you, Imad. Yours is an inspirational story, and I really do wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And um, Reina, I actually wanted to ask you the same question that I just asked Imad. Uh, what advice or insights would you give to companies considering hiring refugees? Well, first of all, Imad, that, yeah, love that. And I have eaten in your restaurant, and it's amazing. And I I'm looking forward to returning to London soon and I will come back and I will come and find you and say hello. So, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, good luck with, with everything and is an inspiring story. Um, I loved, I think what Imad said, I, I love that I've written it down. Instead of asking where do you come from, just ask what you can do. And I think for, for social care, that's really pertinent. I think it's about, we, we social care tends to attract people who have got lived experience. And that's what we say a lot of the skills, what we see in the refugee community is people with resilience, with experience, with lived 
and with skills. And, and as Imad said, not everyone's going to be brilliant. Not everyone's going to have a particular skill that meets a shortage. But we're dealing with a range of human people and experiences. And I think social care is a great place for um, welcoming people who haven't necessarily come a traditional route into employment. They haven't necessarily been great at school and then gone to uni and then gone into work. You know, it, it's often people have had um, bring a lot of experience with them. So for me, I'd be saying that, you know, we have a huge swathe of people who um, are there with skills and for the purpose of labelling, they happen to be in the refugee community and we have barriers to engaging and employing them. And I think Imad's point, and I think um, Rishnara made it as well, around this kind of, in the, in the way we have to do with sponsorship with international work, you know, why couldn't there be something that, you know, if you're an employer and you're seeking skills and someone comes into the country seeking a son who has those skills, why could you not accept some responsibility for them in the same way as a sponsorship so that you're, you know, you're, you're able to employ them and give that meaningful activity and build those skills and integrate, as Imad said, into the community without leaving people marginalized in a, in a bubble that maybe risks that integration. And I think you kind of begin that virtuous circle of bringing people in and engaging and learning. And, and I, I think it's been a really strange time because in one way, you know, it feels COVID has brought communities together, but in another way, that global feeling of being a global network and that globalization and feeling that we're all kind of able to integrate and move and be anywhere in the world, you know, is, is gone a bit. And I think in some ways people have become a bit more insular and it's created some divisions as well that I think we really need to work on as employers. And I think if we can show that as employers, you look you see the potential, you see people who can bring skills. And it's not just about labor shortage, which obviously we do have. It is about a skills shortage. It's about people who bring so much and can offer so much and who want to do that. Um, so yeah, why would you not look to that and try and link in with it and offer opportunity? Because it's a win-win situation and everyone can learn from each other. You know, we, we all, learn from diversity as Rishinara said in the workplace and um, you know you can bring great skills we always say that when we take on a new contract or acquire a new location we say it's as much although we're established and we know what we're doing and we're professional we always learn from people coming into our organization because you know you'd be arrogant if you didn't oh, oh keep your mind open to learning but yeah, so, so why would you not would be my question rather than why would you look to that as an employer? Why wouldn't you? Thanks for that, Rena. Um, now, you've supported the refugee cause for many years um, in different capacities. Why is this cause so important to you? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done as much. I wouldn't want to big myself up. I haven't done as much as I, I'm sure I could have done. It's, it's kind of full on. I do a lot of lobbying in, in social care, and I suppose that it, my my own lived experience about how I came into social care and my own experience as a social worker and then in, in social care is, is a lot about inequality and justice, as, as Tanya was saying. Um, and as Liliana saying about skill, you know, looking at people's skills and what they can give and what barriers are there to them to realizing that. So for me, I'm 
yeah, I, I think the, the notion of justice and, and tackling inequality and generalizations, um, which can be unhelpful, is a really big theme for me. And so it, it covers my work in social care generally and how I try and live my life. And I suppose the, the refugee element to that is, is, again, it's about those generalizations made, the lack of awareness and knowledge, um, the human, lack of humanity sometimes shown, often shown. Um, and, and then the fact is, as a major, as an employer, you know, a frustration that it isn't easier to link in and have support to access a network that is there with people who are who can give so much and who desperately want to give so much. And we know from international recruitment from people who haven't been displaced through conflict or that they have chosen to come to try and forge a different or better lifestyle for them and their families um, in you know, a less traumatic way often, but still you know, taking a huge leap to come from another country and work here and then maybe bring their family here or go back. You know, we know from those people that they're so eager to give and learn and contribute and um, yeah so so for me it's if you've got the opportunity to help and I think Tanya everybody's just had such good contributions there I forget who it was but I think it was Tanya and her tonight sorry tonight I'm pronouncing your name wrong <laughs> um, and I think that feeling that actually you can't necessarily help it's tremendously difficult to help at scale but if you can just do small things that can help even one person and you can try and change hearts and minds and attitudes or help one person's journey, then, you know, let's give it a go and try, try your best at that. Thank you so much, Raina. Um, and that leads us nicely into the final question, uh, which is uh, we, we are reaching out to 100 companies as part of the Sona 100 campaign to create opportunities for refugees. What would you say to companies considering being a part of this campaign? Um, what would you say are the benefits? Um, I think I'd, I'd say we, we were, there are many sectors that have either a practical labor shortage and or a skills shortage. And if we are recognizing that we have a group of people within our society who can meet some of that demand, just as I think Rishina said earlier, just from a purely business perspective, can we use our business influence as employers to join something that can campaign for that and show the opportunities and maybe highlight some of the barriers that are there for employers in that process? Um, some of which have been discussed already and, you know, others that it's just sometimes those networks I think particularly if you're not in a major city you know a lot of our locations are across the country in relatively rural areas um, smaller towns and cities not the major ones so it you know obviously why I contacted you in the first place is trying to get a contact choose love and say how do we network into someone that can help us not just piecemeal find an odd individual who might stumble across our, our jobs but actually work in a more positive and constructive way to try and link in with people where we can make a little bit more of a difference and a change and maybe improve those networks to improve that employer individual um, relationship really so I think if we you know if we can join into something that brings 100 employers together and create something a bit more significant in a collective voice then that can only again be a win-win. 
Thank you so much, Reina. Um, that actually comes brings us to the end of the Q&A part. Uh, we have just a few minutes left, so we're, we're going to go around and do very, uh, uh, very quick, quick questions. Uh, we'll just ask uh, each of you one question each. And um, yeah, just give us the answers, uh, the first thing that pops into your head. Um, so we're going to start with you, Tanya. Uh, yes, um, the media is often very hostile towards refugees and asylum seekers. How do we combat this? Well, it's uh, such a such a big question, isn't it? Um, well, I think I think I think it's about building alternatives. Um, you know, even even journey to justice and even the work of Sona. How do we how do we support communities um, out, outside the media, and how do we bring people together uh, through stories and the arts and all of what brings human connection? And we had a you know. Um, you know, lovely, lovely stories being shared, and I could connect with that stories. With that story that's just been being said. So I think if we can create alternatives and different voices being heard and bringing people together to share and build connection, that would help to challenge those stereotypes. And I was saying earlier, it all it, it is also part of being being a just person. How do we also be self-critical of ourselves? How do we treat others? And how do we challenge what we believe? In? How do we how do we get out outside ourselves and put try to be compassionate and trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes? So I get the media is a big institution, but if we can bring people together around the table, have a conversation, and we will find that we have more in common and that we can build interest and build coalition. And it's also part of that. Also, is about learning about human rights and history, which um, because if we understand. Uh, history and we understand the context, then we're more able to build on things that have been done before um, and feel more galvanized to do that. Um, anything that's small, anything that brings human connection, I think is really, really powerful. Human power comes through inspiration, connections and, and building together. And if we can do that outside, outside the media, which has, of course have a lot more power, a lot more platform and people will who are busy with their lives will tend to listen to what happens, um, and and we can't we can't blame we can't blame them because people are busy. People try to get on with with their lives, but if we can together uh, come together and also think about how can we improve people's life economically as well, which comes down to journey to justice economic project, economic injustice project, because these are universal. So, for example, if I if I see in my community better education, you know, I see. Um, you know, good healthcare. I can see that I'm earning more. All of this has a direct impact on on our lives, and people can feel it. People feel it. People say, "Oh, my my children are better off. My grandchildren are better off." So I think if we can also focus on what we call universal, because the media might might tend to divide us based on on you know, as as I think Imad said earlier, you know, it's be divisive, be entrenched in our, in, in our own groups, in our own interests. But if we get out of it and think about the universal economic, often class interests, which is about employment, um, as we talked earlier, living wage, uh, joining a union, all of that is, is what would have a more significant impact, irrespective of uh, your ethnicity, your religion, your gender, your sexual orientation, whether you're a refugee or not. So let's try and focus on those things, healthcare, housing, um, living wage, uh, jobs, employment, all of that bring people to bring people together. And hopefully we'll have to challenge some of the stereotypes that are 
and the culture war that's out there. Um, I guess that's what comes to mind. Thank you so much, Tanya. Uh, Liliana, the next question is, is yours. And what one thing would you say uh, that comes to mind that could help refugee integration? Well, one thing, um, better information, for sure, better dissemination of information and some action in a local level as well. Well, there are two, uh, but they are connected. <laughs> um, I think that uh, the local communities have a huge role in that, in the way we talk about uh, we talk about refugees and how we we, we, con we are connected to them. So talking about the role of media is not only about the media, but it's how all of us talk. And I think that Iman's point was perfect on that. How in our everyday lives we talk and what are the narrative and the discourse we all create around a refugee crisis and refugees group, the refugee groups. So I think first of all, information and then action in a local level to connect with your council, with your neighbor, and if your friends. Uh, so with something that we've also discussed, we start small. You don't need to, to make huge changes in individual level, but if you do your part on be careful with the way you portray people, uh, I think that's a good start. Thank you so much, Liliana. Liliana. And uh, finally, Reina, what one thing do you think could be done to support, uh, to give refugees more job opportunities? These are the things we talked about, central government. So make the system more transparent, make it easier, give more business support, maybe through things like, you know, more business streams like Chamber of Commerce, like CBI, you know, where is it on those agendas that are business focused to say, if you're interested in this labor, you know, supply and, you know, at a business level, this is how we can help you. And then surely that would help save the government money because they'd hopefully get people into employment and, and you know, it helps the integration issue we've talked about, helps the self-worth, everything. Um, so I think information system flow, and some better networks um, for employers to access, to link up at scale would be great. Sorry, that's not one thing either. <laughs> great answer. Um, thank you, Reina. Thank you, Liliana. And thank you, Tanya, for joining us. Um, thank you, everyone who, um, who's watching this at home. Um, you've all been brilliant. And I've really enjoyed this um, uh, panel discussion with you all. Thank you for having us. And lovely to meet you all. Likewise. Thank, thank you, you all. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.